This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. This should be a wonderful discussion. Joined by um, Governor Ambassador Madeline May Cunin. She served as the 77th Governor of Vermont from 1985 until 1991. As a member of the Democratic Party, she was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. Uh, I had spoken with her a number of years back on her book, The New Feminist Agenda. She is joining us on our program now to talk with us about a new publication entitled Coming of Age. My Journey to the 80s, a memoir. It's so nice to speak with you again. Good morning. Good morning. Part of the, um, I guess, way of getting us started is some people refer to you as governor. Some people refer to you as ambassador. Um, Your tenure as governor obviously was longer, but ambassador was more recent. Does one title resonate more with you than the other? Not really. Um, governor is a little more use, useful in Vermont, you know, where people know me as that. But uh, both positions were very fascinating and a uh, great honor to hold. And, uh, you know, coming back to Switzerland as ambassador, the country where I was born, that was kind of a homecoming, too, and, and had its own challenges. In this book, one of the things that you talk about fairly early on, you use the phrase, I am not old. <laughs> what would being old be like? Well, being old, well, you know, in a way I am, in a way I'm not. Um, the reason I said that I wrote a poem uh, where I was at a jazz concert, and uh, it just got to me, you know, I was I was pounding my feet and uh, swinging my arms, it was just so lively and captivating, so I felt, I felt uh, the same as the young people there, so I think... Obviously, at the age of 85, I can't deny that I'm old. But in this book, this book is different from the other books that I wrote because I'm turning more inward. I'm trying to examine how my body and my mind are changing as I make this transition to old age. Well, how old do you actually feel? (laughs) Well... Probably about 45. <laughs> yeah. But some days when I'm climbing stairs and my knees speak to me, uh, I know that uh, I'm changing. But the important thing is I can still do the stairs. Well, that along with the fact that, you know, you s- still have your, your faculties uh, completely about you. Because if you have your mind, I think... That's one of the most important things that 
a lot of us really think about as we start to uh, age, you know, we want to be able to preserve our, our, our mental faculties. So if you've got that, that's some people say that's half the battle right there. That's right. That's right. And to still retain your curiosity, you know, to want to know what's happening, uh, what's going to happen the next day, or to meet a new person or get a new idea, um, to just, you know, be alive um, as as the uh, future is shorter, you live more intensely and, you know, sort of carpe diem, seize the day, because uh, you don't know how many days are ahead. As the first woman in U.S. history to have been elected governor of a U.S. state three times, did you feel specific pressures? Well, yes and no. I mean, once you're in the job, you try to do the best you can, no matter what. But I also knew that I would be a role model for future women in that position. And so I was conscious of that. But, uh, you know, I did my best, and uh, it was... It was a challenge, but it was also a great adventure. And uh, I could also create new pathways for other women. About half the people in my administration were female. And that was because there was a lot of talent out there. But you know, one way to define power is to use power to empower others. And so I, I did consciously try to do that. You have identified with the feminist movement since the 1970s. In terms of your feminist awakening, if I can phrase it that way, what kind of role did books play? Did this book play? Well, in writing it, I entered a a different zone of my thinking. Uh, When I was in politics and a public figure, I felt I had to be very careful like most politicians feel, with some exceptions, of course. But I had to watch my words. I had to watch how I behaved. And being out of politics, being a former governor and former ambassador, I have a certain freedom um, that I can wear what I want to wear and, and speak what I want to speak. Of course, still within some limits, of course, because you never totally stop putting words through a sieve to uh, keep out anything that might boomerang or, or offend people. So, uh, but I'm, I'm still very much engaged in equality for women, and I have been all of my public life. And, of course, this has been such a banner year where more women than ever ran for local office for Congress. And it's so healthy. It's so exciting that uh, women are saying, you know, we belong at the table. If we don't like what's happening in this country or in our state, we have to have a vote. We have to have a voice. And the best way to do that is to really get jump into the political system. It was 1933 when you were born in Zurich. How did your family know when it was time to leave? 
Switzerland was surrounded by countries invaded invaded by the Nazis. So it got awfully close. It's a small country. I mean, there was, of course, Germany. And the day we arrived in the United States, Italy, Italy was in the war. Uh, France. It was it was getting dangerous, and especially as a Jewish family, we felt the best way to handle this scary situation was to come to America. Some of my family went to Israel. Some went to Great Britain. So people who who could flee did. Having been a refugee, how did that impact and how does it impact how you feel about immigration these days? Of course, having, as you know, been an immigrant, I have a very positive attitude towards immigration. I have to to accept the fact that being an immigrant from Europe uh, was easier than the situation is for immigrants today in America, from Latin America and Asia and, and the Middle East. It's a struggle, and there are quotas, and they're, they're coming with often without an education or training for a career. But the motive is exactly the same, for a better life. I mean, we were a middle-class family. My mother was a widow. My father died when I was two. So it was different. But we uh, we couldn't... My mother spoke a little English, and I learned English pretty quickly. But I think being an immigrant also gave me that old-fashioned, patriotic feeling about America. And my mother would say to me and my brother... Anything is possible in America, and we believe that, and that was our our attitude and our optimism. I mean, that's one reason I got into politics, because I believed that I could do that, that uh, anything was possible in America. Now, you're not a Holocaust survivor, but you do harbor Holocaust survivors' guilt. How do you explain that? Well, members of my family were killed in the Holocaust, and aunt and uncle, and uh, my father was German, uh, though my parents lived in Switzerland, and on my mother's side, they were French. So I don't know how many were killed, uh, but I know that my aunt and uncle uh, died in a concentration camp and a cousin died at Auschwitz. Uh, so I was affected. And if my parents had stayed in Germany, I, I would be one of the victims. So I feel a, a great connection uh, with with those people, and I feel they should be remembered somehow and not just die as the anonymous six million Madeline Cunin joins us on our program on The Fan this morning. The Sports Edge at 7.30 this Sunday morning follows the NFL preview, which happens at 7 o'clock. J.J. in the morning line at 8.30. And at 9 o'clock, football Sunday action. Malusis and Deal here on The Fan. We're talking on our program with uh, Madeline May Cunin, 
she is uh, someone who has had a very interesting lifestyle, uh, to say the least. She served as the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 to 1991 as a member of the Democratic Party. She was a member of the administration of President Bill Clinton, serving as Deputy Secretary of Education of the United States from 1993 to 1996. She also served as U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999. She's written three previous books. She is joining us to talk with us about her latest book, Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. And she's our guest in this portion of our program. What did you know of your father's life before his marriage to your mother? Sadly, my father died when I was very young, two and a half, and uh, he committed suicide, which is still a hard thing for me to say um, because it's such a loss even after all these years. I knew he was, he, he grew up in a small rural town in Germany and was self-educated and became a successful businessman. He imported shoes from the United States and other places and had shoe shops uh, in about five different cities. And um, fortunately, he uh, suffered from depression. And he was actually in World War One, where I now consider having read about a little bit about him, that he had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and uh, though they didn't have a name or a diagnosis for that at the time. Disposing of sentimental artifacts is something that most people have or will have to deal with. You have had some possessions that are of interest not just to you, but to the country. What was it like downsizing to prepare to move to where you now live? Well, I think every every person who downsizes, it's a common, common practice as you get older, as you move into a smaller place or, or assisted living. Um, it's... Each object has some meaning, you know, like a, uh, a silver tea set reminded me of my mother and my aunt and reminded me that I hadn't polished it in years. Um, books go through various chapters of your life. So you're really shedding uh, some of your history. But at the same time, you're kind of leaving yourself open for new experiences in a new kind of life. So it can be hard, but then it can be sort of liberating at the end. Uh, and that's how I describe downsizing. I, I describe different things that I've experienced, you know, how my body is changing at this age. Um, but in the book, I also try to be... Um, upbeat um, because I can still enjoy a sunset and and you have more time to enjoy things that are happening to you now and uh, I think it's just important to make friends the hardest thing is when friends die 
and when family members die. And so it is a period of loss, but it is also a period of gain if you're fortunate enough to experience it. I don't want to make getting old just a happy experience. And it's your fault if you're not doing it right. I I think you have to have a certain amount of financial security and uh, have hopefully family and friends uh, and then the ability to make new friends. You founded an organization called Emerge Vermont. Would you tell us a little bit about the organization, why you founded it? Well, we've had a wonderful year. Emerge is also in other states, and what we do is we recruit and train women to run for office. We don't raise money for them. Uh, Other organizations do that. But women still believe most of the time that they don't know how to run for office, and we're so used to taking a course or to tell us what to do in other fields, but there's no degree in running for office. So we teach people how to speak in public, how to run a campaign, and this year has just been fantastic as more women have run uh, and women of color and women who've had other careers like nurses or teachers. So it's a wonderful trend uh, to help make democracy work, uh, so that we are not we are not ruled by. Pardon me for saying it, old white men, which is the predominant portrait you see when you see members of Congress. At this point in your life, with the things that you've accomplished, your work, are you happy? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Most of the time I am. Yes. I I mean, I consider myself fortunate uh, that I'm basically healthy uh, and that I can still get out and do things and march in the Women's March when I did. And I have wonderful children and grandchildren and good friends. So I'm basically happy. That doesn't mean I never get depressed or I never get upset. I do. I'm a normal person in that sense. But fundamentally, yes, I am happy. Madeline May Cunin talking with us on our program. Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, the book. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly good luck with this book, and good luck continued with your your work and your life. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Bob Salter and joined by Dale McGowan on our program. Uh, Dale has an interesting uh, background. He is a uh, Harvard uh, human, Humanist of the Year. Uh, he teaches parenting uh, workshops across the uh, country and serves as executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief. He's the author of two books previously. We're going to be talking about his latest book. It has a very interesting title, In Faith and in Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers can create strong marriages and loving families. The book is published by Amacom. It's nice to have you join us on our program, first of all. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Bob. This latest book, um, what's the inspiration for it? Well, the inspiration for it was uh, the growing number of uh, people who are in these marriages, in marriages between religious believers and non-believers, 
And uh, the initial inspiration was actually my own marriage. Uh, 23 years ago, I married a Southern Baptist, and uh, I am an atheist. So uh, right away, it was a, uh, a topic of interest to me. And as I got to know more people in that situation, I realized that some resources were really needed. What was the experience like, or what has the experience been like in your marriage? Uh, well, uh, our situation was interesting. This is one of the reasons that I, uh, it didn't occur to me to write the book for some time. Uh, we had very little conflict. You would think that a Southern Baptist and an atheist would have nothing in common, <laughs> no basis for, uh, for building a uh, relationship. But we actually had very few issues. We found that uh, the difference between us was in beliefs, in relative abstractions, you know, what we thought was true about the universe, uh, not in values. Our values, what we thought was good, what we thought was important in life, uh, those were very much aligned from the beginning. So uh, we had relatively little uh, conflict, but I began to uh, meet more and more people who were in these situations who had different variables in play. And uh, they frequently ran into a lot of conflict. So I wanted to see what the difference was between my relatively tension-free marriage and somebody else's that, that sometimes ends in divorce. When you say they had, you know, these sort of things that were issues, what kinds of issues? Well, the issues range from, um, you know, interpersonal issues between the couple. Uh, if you have a religious partner, for example, who thinks that uh, her spouse is going to hell, that's something that's going to get in the way of the uh, of the marriage, that's a um, uh, that's going to be tension-inducing. If you have an atheist who thinks that a religious partner is not intelligent, uh, that's going to get in the way. Uh, dogmatic thinking, uh, a desire to convert the partner, uh, is one of the strongest tension markers that I found in these relationships. Uh, you have to go into it saying, uh, "I accept you as you are. I am not in this relationship to change you uh, to be what I am." And if couples can master some of those variables and keep communication open, things tend to go much better. That idea of keeping the communication open, and I'm assuming when you say that keeping communication open means keeping the communication, you know, as full and as free as possible, too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. What you have to do is uh, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, you're in a relationship, uh, you're sharing a life, and uh, if there's something that's important to one of the partners to talk about, to engage in, um, then it really has to be okay to talk about that. We can't continue to push things to the uh, uh, back into the shadows. That just builds up in a relationship in a toxic way. And when things are not, you know, put out there in that honest fashion where, you know, somebody feels comfortable enough to be able to talk about this with, you know, their life partner... Um, when that happens, I mean, it would seem that is just a prescription for conflict. Oh, it absolutely is. And this is something that even outside of the realm of religion uh, is well known in, in uh, relationship, uh, uh, among relationship experts. Uh, having open communication, having a willingness to confront things honestly, uh, to be honest about your own feelings, all of these are the things that uh, add up to a, uh, a strong relationship. And if you keep something, especially something as potentially important as religious beliefs uh, bottled up. If you keep that uh, you know, to yourself and don't talk about what the things are that, uh, that bother you in the relationship or that the things that you need uh, in the relationship along those lines, uh, that's not going to get any better. <laughs> that's not something that uh, over time is, is going to uh, typically diminish. It will usually go the other way. The idea of communication is one aspect of this. Where does, you know, basic respect. Basically, you're respecting 
the other person's views, um, the other person's worldview. Where does that fall in this? Well, this is an interesting uh, uh, topic. I actually think it's one of the things that uh, is kind of a breakthrough is when people realize that they can respect a person uh, as an individual. They can respect that person's right to hold the beliefs that they have and even the, the person's intentions in, in holding those beliefs without saying, yes, I respect the beliefs as well. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. We're in discussion with Dale McGowan. He's the author of In Faith and In Doubt, How Religious Believers and Non-Believers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Dr. Ronald Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, in his background, is an obstetrician, a gynecologist, and medical author. Um, he is uh, joining us on our program in his role specifically as the author of The Care of the Older Person, an Invaluable Resource for Care Providers. Now, just saying that title has probably got a lot of people's attention as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program, Dr. Kaplan. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, when we talk about this idea of society getting older and there are a lot of people in society getting older because as many people say you know you want to get older because the alternative is not not the greatest uh, thing to consider um for somebody who's taking care of someone who is an older person how challenging and experience can that be? Well, it can be very challenging. It depends the way you look at it. Uh, right now, uh, there are 50 million of us, us including me, in uh, the United States alone. And uh, there's a predominance of uh, women over men in that statistic. And it can be challenging for a lot of reasons. Number one is... Uh, probably first and foremost, is that traditionally retirement age is considered to be, uh, give or take, 65 years of age in our society. And the reasons for that are very interesting. Uh, namely, about 150 years ago, a German diplomat uh, decided, it was von Bismarck, <laughs> he decided that the uh, average age of death of his workers in Germany was about 67, so that if he retired them at 65 uh, with a with some kind of a bonus or payoff, then he could hire younger people and come away with much less money because, of course, younger people started a, a lower wage and then gradually worked their way up, or that's the way it was then. So we somehow for 150 years have kept this same idea in our heads that at 65 you lay off people, and that's rapidly becoming obsolete. So people are looking at a loss not only of uh, some of their income and some of their livelihood, but what they've been doing for a huge proportion of their life, uh, people don't realize until they until they quit or laid off or retired, they don't realize how much of their life is involved in their work. And especially if you find whatever work you're doing fulfilling and rewarding, as a lot of us do, thankfully, uh, when that 
goes away from your life. It leaves an enormous void, and that has to be filled. And yes, people have other activities, but they quickly find out that those other activities may not be as meaningful to them or as important to them as their work was. And they don't get the same level or feel that they get the same level of respect once they've left uh, the employed world. They, they don't feel that they matter as much. As far as their family goes, uh, people inevitably get sick and unfortunately die. And that may mean that even though you may be 65 or older and healthy, uh, you may lose a spouse, you may have a sick spouse, you may have other things happening to your friends and, and relations, and you're losing contacts that have been lifelong contacts and that have been meaningful and loving to you. And you, as the years go on, can feel more and more isolated. I think I'm drawing much too bleak a picture here because a lot of us uh, develop a lot of other interests and do a lot of other things, like me talking to you on the radio. And you, you find fulfillment in other ways. To be perfectly trite about it, uh, one, one answer is to make a lot of younger friends, be, be around younger people, because inevitably the people you're around are going to, in one way or other, wander off or disappear. So when you're talking about that person or persons who are caring for someone who's older, I guess what should they be keeping in mind to kind of keep things in perspective, especially as if they're just starting out in that role as a caretaker? Well, it's really not as complicated as it sounds. The reason why we put out this book, and it's uh, put out by a, a group of people who are uh, very experienced academicians and clinicians who uh, are used to dealing with uh, the older population, what we realized is, is that we bank up almost 20% of the population, and that's going up to around a quarter of all people in the next 10 or 12 years. That's a lot of people. And the, the geriatricians, the people who are most trained to take care of this population, of course, they can't take care of a quarter of the population of the United States or uh, other countries. So uh, what we realized is, is we had to get information out into the field to everybody who takes care of older people. And if you want to sum the whole thing up in uh, two sentences, it's the golden rule. Do unto others the way you would like them to treat you. And uh, we can we can see that uh, that if you're if you're kind and if if you're caring and if you want to spend the time and the energy to to help somebody who's older, uh, then you're a good person. And we like to think of ourselves as good people, and especially the people we're around who we love and we care about, our relatives, our good friends that we've known for 
for a long time that we grew up with, uh, it's, it's a natural thing to do to want to help those people. And if each of us did that, it would ameliorate a, a tremendous amount of, of what is a, a burgeoning problem. The other thing is, for goodness sake, don't be condescending. An older person, just because they may be getting a little frail and maybe a little forgetful, and maybe they tend to fall down here and there, that doesn't mean they're stupid. They have a vast life experience, probably better than yours if you're much younger than, than them, and they, they know a lot of stuff. And not only that, they can sense how you feel towards them the same way any of us can tell who's real and who's phony and who's, who really has, cares for us and who's really just there for some other reason, for the money or, or because they have to. You want people around you who are genuinely caring. And you have to understand that the person you're taking care of or helping is at least on the same level as you and maybe uh, intellectually even on a higher level because they've been around for so long and they know so many things. Uh, so they can, they can sense condescension. We can sense condescension immediately. We know who's trying to be nice to us uh, just to uh, get rid of us or, or, uh, or uh, to come off as a nice person as opposed to being genuinely good. So it's the most important thing is to be caring and not to condescend. And the rest of it is having a little knowledge of what's going on with the person you're taking care of and to know some signs and symptoms so that you can get them to appropriate medical help or whatever other facilities they need at the appropriate time. Mm -hmm. Another thing we're learning is don't institutionalize people unless you absolutely have to. And even if people have to move into a different type of living than they're used to, it doesn't have to be a, a vast difference between what they're experiencing now and where you want them to be and where, in fact, they want to be. And as a matter of fact, right now, besides things like retirement homes and residences, there's a whole middle layer of something called active aging communities. This is for people who are uh, physically adept and they're, and they're mentally active and they, uh, they don't need to be in some kind of a home. All they need is, is a, a nice place to be with, with a lot of uh, ability to do exercise and to have fun and to get together and, and to pursue their lives. Dr. Kaplan, the author of The Care of the Older Person, an Invaluable Resource for Care Providers. And we were talking about older folks and making decisions that are important and that are basically life-changing and sometimes making a decision to give up a career. Now, before our update and messages, one of the things that you mentioned, actually the last thing that you mentioned, Dr. Kaplan, is something that probably got a lot of people's attention when you talked about the idea of some of your colleagues in the medical community 
making that decision not to go back into an operating room. And many of us have made that decision. We make it for ourselves. It's very, very rare, very rare, that the, the medical staff or, or the, uh, the governing board of a hospital or the uh, federal or state authorities have to come in and say, this guy's got to stop because he's a menace to society. And those are the, the things you read about in the paper, hear about in the news. It's very, very rare. Right? You know, it's, it's most of us are smart enough and wise enough to make a decision that we're here to help people. And the day we feel that we're not helping people 100%, that's the day we walk. And we all make that decision voluntarily. It, it's an old concept, but a good one. So, yes, if, if at some point you're on the road, right, and you're driving your car, and you say, geez, I'm not seeing too well here. So you stop driving at night. How many of us make that kind of a decision? Nobody tells us to stop driving at night, right? But just, you say, okay, maybe I'm not as good on the road as I used to be at night. A lot of people, younger people, love to drive at night. There's less traffic. The illumination is good. Uh, the truck drivers who are on the road are generally pros, so they don't do anything stupid usually. So it's a great time to drive. But at some point in your life, you say, okay, I'm not going to drive anymore at night. And you make that decision. Nobody makes it for you. If, and if you're a, if you're a a wise person, you have your wits about you, then you make that decision. Again, it, I would say it's relatively rare that somebody has to take away your car keys and, or that the state authority has to say, guess what, we're not issuing you a new driver's license, or worse, we're revoking your driver's license, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's important for the individual and for the society, really, that we all have that freedom of choice and we make the right decisions for ourselves and for our friends and neighbors and, and the greater society that we, what we're here for is to do good, not harm. And now, if you're in the situation, I think the other thing that maybe you're getting to, so maybe I'll get to it first, is that I think we should all be prepared for eventualities that might happen to us, a hospitalization, a major sickness, death. Mm -hmm. So many people uh, die without a will. Make a will. Make sure that there's some kind of an orderly transition. Give a power of attorney, maybe, to somebody you really, really trust. You'd better be sure you really trust that person if you're giving them a power of attorney. And it and it could be limited or, or it, it could be unlimited, depending. And it could be a, the type of power of attorney that only comes up, uh, say, if you are in a debilitating sickness, then that person is not allowed to take over until you're hospitalized and some doctor is attested to this, something like that. And, you, and we should all have, you should have something called a living will. You should be able to, even if you're unconscious, that uh, there doesn't have to be a huge discussion about whether to keep you alive interminably or let you go. I think these are things 
reasonable people can do. And you'd be amazed how many people don't do that. Maybe a majority don't do, do all those things. Dr. Kaplan, thank you very much for your kindness with your time and uh, the information you've shared with us. I know this information is very valuable for the folks listening to us this morning, too. Well, I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I really appreciate you getting this information out there because I really think it's important. Thanks. The Sports Edge at 7.30 this Sunday morning follows the NFL preview, which happens at 7 o'clock. J.J. in the morning line at 8.30. And at 9 o'clock, football Sunday action. Malusis and Deal here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.